0: Hello and welcome to the Double Double. My name is David Dixon and it is Monday, June 15th here in New York City. Hope everyone is staying safe and that they are well during the coronavirus pandemic. Today is my dad's birthday, so I just want to shout him out. Happy birthday, dad. Uh, Big birthday for you. Coming up today on the podcast is an interview I recorded earlier today with the head women's basketball coach at Johns Hopkins University, Coach Katherine Bixby. Uh, We had a great conversation, really interesting, so I think uh, you all will enjoy that. Before we get to the interview, recommendation corner this week, next week on June 23rd is primary day here in New York. So my recommendation this week is for everyone to go out, and register to vote if you are not already, you can go to here in New York, vote.nyc. You can find your voter registration status. You can also crucially find your polling site and where you can go to vote. And while anyone here in New York might think, hey, it's a blue state, it's a blue city, you know, Joe Biden's probably gonna win the, the presidential nomination here. What we have seen in the last two weeks is the power of the local elections. And this is a very important primary for everyone who's running for those local seats, that they're also on the ballot. And so this is a chance where you can choose who's going to be in the general election, not just for the presidential election, which is obviously very, very important, but also for the local uh, spots here in New York. Just So for everyone here in New York, that's what I highly recommend. Go out, find your registration status, find your polling place, and then this week do, do some research on who's running, what are they supporting, what platforms are they campaigning on, and is this a candidate who, who I want to, to support? So once again, it is vote.nyc. You can put that into Google and it will come out and you'll get all the information you need. So I'm going to hit the music. And when we come back is my interview recorded earlier today with the head women's basketball coach at Johns Hopkins University, Catherine Bixby. Joining me today on the podcast is a special guest, the head women's basketball coach at Johns Hopkins University, Catherine Bixby. A native of Philadelphia, she played both basketball and lacrosse at Ithaca College. And as a a collegiate athlete, Coach Bixby was an all-conference player in both sports and finished her career fourth in points, third in assists, and third in made three-pointers in Ithaca women's basketball history. She began her coaching career at her alma mater in 2012 as an assistant coach on the women's basketball team, and after two years on the staff at Ithaca, Coach Bixby was named the head women's basketball coach at Dickinson College. In her three years at Dickinson, she helped lead the team to a 41-35 record, and in the summer of 2017, Coach Bixby was named the head women's basketball coach at Johns Hopkins. In her three years with the Blue Jays, she has guided the team to a 57-24 record and an appearance in the second round of the 2019 NCAA tournament. I'm thrilled she's taking the time to join me today. Coach, how's it going?
1: Hi, David. Thanks. It's going really well. I appreciate you having me on.
0: Of course. So, so, Kyle, let's go back to the inning, Coach. I mentioned at the top you grew up in Philly. Just when did you first start uh, playing basketball?
1: Well, I think, you know, I'm, I'm glad you said Philly is where I grew up because it really – um, I'm biased, but uh-huh. I think Philly had a big, uh, part of that, you know, um, not only was it high quality basketball for women, but there were so many opportunities. Um, my mom played basketball at Colgate and, okay. you know, back in the seventies and she was the first women's class there, but she had that opportunity to play in college because she played in high school and she had a lot of right. experience in the Philadelphia area because, you know, she grew up in that area too. Um, and there was just no question around whether or not women played competitive sports. You know, it was, yeah. it was now that I'm older and I look back and I think about all that experience and then I, especially being at Hopkins and recruiting nationally, I've heard that that wasn't the mm-hmm. the way it was all over, you know, even 10 years ago, but there was just so much good basketball. I mean, we played, probably three leagues every summer. I played in a CYO league, right? Like the Uh Catholic youth organization leagues, um, played in an outdoor league out in Lansdale PA. So just outside of the city played in an indoor league at LaSalle. I mean, while still doing AAU, you know, Uh just played in all these leagues and you couldn't get enough of it. Uh, Again, my mom was a huge part of it. I mean, she played all the time. My sisters, I'm one of three, and I'm the youngest. Okay. Both my sisters played. They didn't play in college, but they played high school. Uh, and you just always wanted to play. You know, I, I, I can't remember a time when I was sitting around and not wanting to go back outside and play. <laughs> um, there was just something about it, you know, getting yeah. your hands dirty. Um when it was hot in the summer and then in the winter, when it was cold, you just got so used to it. I think it was right. a big good, you know, and, and I still am. I just, I loved playing basketball.
0: So you're playing all the time, as you mentioned, winter, uh, spring, summer, just constantly playing basketball. What was your recruiting process like in high school and how did you kind of go about choosing Ithaca?
1: Yeah, so I played for an organization called FenCor. Uh, And they're still around. It's an AAU team. uh, And we practice at Germantown Academy, a really, you know, strong private school that's well known in the Philadelphia area Mm -hmm. for basketball. Uh, And I started playing competitively with them, I think, in sixth grade. And uh, that really drove the recruiting process. I went to a small private school in the city called Germantown Friends. And our team was good, but, you know, we weren't. I think we might've been that first wave where you were really using AAU to get recruited. You weren't really using high school. High school was just more just fine tuning some of the skills you wanted to work on and then enjoying it and, you know, being competitive. But Mm -hmm. AAU was really what drove it. And back then when I was playing, we were still allowed to play at tournaments at division one schools. Okay. So obviously they changed that because that was a recruiting, uh, kind of, that was a advantageous part of recruiting. <laughs> if, so, so, so I'll use the school as an example. Penn state ran a huge AAU tournament. Um, yeah. I think it was with USJN, uh, and obviously they can use that as a recruiting tactic. Um, University of Maryland had a huge tournament, and they used American University a little bit for those games. Gotcha. So, I got, yeah, it starts with AAU. I mean, got a lot of interest from the Philadelphia area schools. Uh, and I actually got interested in Ithaca and reached out to Coach Raymond there, who's still there, incredible mm. coach out there, um, because my sister went to Cornell University. Okay. And I really loved Ithaca. I mean, it's just such a unique place college town I love the outdoors uh it's beautiful up there and I liked the distance from home you know mm. I, I wanted to get out um <laughs> and I was interested in physical therapy at the time okay. so Ithaca seemed like a great fit and I reached out to Dan and he ended up being such a great coach and I met the team and I loved the team and I ended up doing early decision at Ithaca you know I kind of decided yeah excuse me I kind of decided in August
0: so and how, it
1: worked out yeah
0: so while you're doing the recruiting process as, as I mentioned you also played lacrosse how did that uh, balance when you're doing these uh, recruiting trips did you also have interest from Ithaca for lacrosse or, or or kind of how did that mesh with with basketball
1: no no that go, yeah that goes back to kind of my high school experience the small school I went to GFS you know was a private school and you did everything mm-hmm. so I played soccer I played basketball I played the cross. Um, My sisters got more into music, and I kind of stayed on the outskirts of that. But you got to do everything at that school. You got to experience everything. You know, they really did mean holistic education when they said that. Yeah. Um, And I think I got a lot of my athletic talents from my mom. My mom played three sports at Colgate, and I always saw that as an option. So after my first year at Ithaca, I missed lacrosse. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just such... When the weather starts turning nice yeah. and the sun comes out and it gets warmer, I wanted to be outside and I just missed still having something competitive to do because at you know at Division three out of season, you're playing pickup but yeah it, if it's you're if you're same. a competitor yeah you know I get a lot out of pickup but I missed games I missed you know winning and losing and having it count in a actual you know win and loss column Mm -hmm. so I just approached the Ithaca coach um Karen Hollins was the coach at that time and I said you know do you take walk-ons I'm really interested in playing so the next fall my sophomore year um I did a little bit of fall ball with the lacrosse team and I and I made the team and really enjoyed my experience kind of balancing both it was difficult it was really difficult But
0: I enjoyed it. Yeah. How did you manage playing both sports? Because a lot of times what what we see, uh, what a lot of college athletes do who play both sports, they'll play like a fall sport and then a spring sports like football, baseball, soccer, lacrosse. How did you go about managing playing both basketball and lacrosse, especially since they're back to back? And if you're having a great basketball season, it kind of overlaps with the start of lacrosse season.
1: Yeah. Well I'm i I'm afraid to the recruits hear this. <laughs> <laughs> but I I am a sports junkie. Uh-huh. Um, I, I probably could have spent more time reading and studying, but you know, I would spend four hours a day doing basketball and lacrosse even in lacrosse season i would show up um and play pickup with the team if they were playing after practice and i was clear with that with the lacrosse coach is that basketball was really my first love and i couldn't really see a day going without it um so really the days i didn't play basketball were the days we were away at a a lacrosse game um so i so i spent a lot of time (laughs) being active um Uh and You know, there was something to it that I don't know how much you get into in these podcasts, but being active then made me able to actually sit and go to classes. Right. So that activity, that physical activity, which was something I identified when I was really young, allowed me to then sit down and focus. You know, I really needed that outlet um, to be able to be more productive in the classroom setting. Right.
0: Right. So yeah. so this is super common, Coach. I know because I just went through it myself in, in college, but it's kind of like once junior year hits, everyone starts thinking about the future, what they're going to be doing post-graduation. It's everyone's favorite question to ask you at, at the holidays. And there's usually a freak out or two in there as well about mm-hmm. your, your plans for the future. When did you uh, kind of know or, or start thinking about pursuing coaching as a career after graduation?
1: Yeah, I think I always knew it was a possibility. I spent every summer working college basketball camps. So, okay. starting first year out of college, you know, between freshman and sophomore year of college, I worked Princeton Ivy League camps. So, Courtney Banghart was the coach and she ran elite camps and would use college players to work the camps. And I loved it. So, I worked Princeton, I worked Penn, I worked. Doug Bruno out in Chicago runs a series of summer basketball camps that are incredible. He actually goes to local small colleges mm-hmm. and he'll, his camp will travel to like North Central and Naperville. Oh, that's awesome. Um, and I worked those and those were a really good for developing my game. Cause you play pickup, right? Yeah. So you play pickup with division one athletes and you realized, you know, they were just bigger and stronger than <laughs> you, but it was really good X's and O's wise. Cause you just you knew how to play the game better once you started playing pickup with them. Um, and then also, you know, it really, you learned how to teach the game to all different levels. Um, so you got better explaining the game. You got better at, you know, understanding either through demonstrations or through, talking how to get the game across to somebody, how to translate it to all different learners. And I, and through those summer jobs, I realized how much I love doing that. And and it's not a surprise. Both my parents are in education. You know, they've both been teachers in some ways, either at the college level or high school or middle school. So teachings in my blood, you know, Mm -hmm. just they've modeled that. Um, so I actually really didn't, get into that as i said in the beginning i went to school for physical therapy and by junior year i i wasn't in love with physical therapy yeah so i actually changed my major to biology because i loved research okay and it took me two more years to graduate so i was actually a fifth year senior uh-huh. and i graduated with a degree in biology and I stayed at Ithaca to get my master's in education mm-hmm. to teach bio, so I was following my mom's footsteps. You know, there's coming a kind, of, kind yeah. of a common theme. Here. <laughs> my mom is my role model, yeah. so let me just be an athlete and a teacher like she is. Right. Um, and I graduated from Ithaca with a master's in secondary education. And Dan, Coach Raymond at Ithaca, called me and was like, "You know, the assistant Alex Ivanchek is leaving. She, she got a head coaching job at the Coast Guard Academy." And I would really like it if you wanted to be my assistant. And I was like, oh, interesting. You know, yeah. I, I could still be with basketball and I love teaching and I love Ithaca. So, you know, let's try it out. Right. Uh, and then I just really lucked out. We had an incredible team. I mean, we made it to the Sweet Sixteens and then mm-hmm. the Elite Eight. Yep. Um, we, it was just a fun group to coach. Um again, it was just kind of timing. Sometimes coaching is timing and a little bit of luck. Yeah, and I think, for sure. I think it was kind of the perfect blend of everything coming together and working out.
0: That kind of brings me to my, to my next question, coach. You were, while you were an assistant, though you were helping coach some of your former teammates and just players who were very close in age to you at that time, was that challenging or difficult at all?
1: You know, it wasn't. And I know if you ask some of them, they'll say something similar. Um, <laughs> I was, I was always a, a lead by example mm-hmm. kind of leader. You know, I think I have found my voice. Obviously, definitely now that I'm a coach, but I always was a hard worker. I loved the game, and I knew the game, and I might be too nice. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I think it it really wasn't that hard because. I had gained respect, A, because, you know, of just talent, but also because I respect the game, and I think that made it an easier transition. Um, I really only coached two athletes that I had played with, Okay. and the rest were I had never played with because of that fifth-year senior and then those two years of grad school. Gotcha. So it's just one year of overlap. Okay. Um, and by then, they're seniors, and I think, you know, college students grow so much every year that a senior is much different than a sophomore. So they, they were also mature in a sense that it wasn't that hard. Um, I definitely had a lot of growing to do, Mm -hmm. you know, when I think back about my role as an assistant, I probably was young and naive and really just focused on basketball. I didn't really understand the mentorship part of it yet. Mm -hmm. Um, but, but it, I, you know, there's, I think, a saying in in Asian language that retrospect isn't worth it because in the moment you don't know,
0: right? Right? For sure. You
1: know, in the, in the moment it felt great and it was working and it was fine.
0: So, kind of like with every job, depending on the organization or, or the company you're with, the same title can come with different responsibilities. So, just for any listeners who might not know, what are some of the responsibilities that that come with being a Division Three basketball coach at Ithaca?
1: So at Ithaca to be an assistant uh, it's full time which makes it one of the best assistant jobs in the country because at the division three level a lot of those assistant jobs are either grad assistants so you're yep. getting your graduate degree or they're part time which can you know really be a financial strain and with healthcare you know if you're if you're older than what is it twenty six um, you know it can be tough to find good healthcare. Uh, but the full-time job at Ithaca was wonderful. You do have secondary duties, so that, that can be different depending on what division three school you're at. We had to teach at Ithaca. So you taught, yeah, you taught physical education courses. So I taught badminton (laughs) was actually really enjoyable. And, you know, you got to know students that weren't your direct student athletes. And I think that helped with some outreach and it helped gain fans and it helped even gain some student assistants. You know, you met maybe Mm -hmm. somebody in a class that enjoyed being around you and maybe wanted to help the women's basketball program that they became a student assistant. So you know, there were some mornings maybe after an, a trip to Stevens Institute of Technology, <laughs> uh, which was about a four hours, and you had an 8 a.m. badminton class. Those were a little harder, but yeah. for the most part, it was enjoyable. You also had game management, so okay. that's another one that's pretty normal. At the Division Three level, we had to do everything from setting up a football field to, you know, being in charge of, you know, welcoming refs welcoming visiting teams just kind of making sure everything runs
0: smoothly yeah i usually during my time at wesley we had two assistant coaches and and the the more senior one got the better like the good football games and the Uh, and the younger one just where the wesleyan athletic department geography is, is like there's the field hockey field that it's like way way far away and so the the young guy had to go out and uh do the game manager for the Farther yeah. away field on a weeknight game, which was a mm-hmm. pretty funny, but but kind of as you mentioned dur- during your two years as an assistant at Ithaca, those are maybe the t- two best back-to-back seasons in Ithaca women's basketball history. As you mentioned, Sweet Sixteen in twenty thirteen and the Elite Eight in twenty fourteen. Just what was it like being on those teams, going on that the, the, you know those deep March runs? It was wonderful. It
1: was so many things were learned. I mean, first off how important talented players are right you you know you can hard work is really important coaching and strategy is important but just having players that are competitive and are talented are you know really especially if you want to go i mean division three basketball is good and you you know especially being at wesleyan if you want to Make a run for a Final Four or a national championship. You need good players. So we were fortunate. We got a transfer from Bryant University named mm-hmm. Mary Kate Tierney, and she was a five eleven guard that okay. could <laughs> shoot the lights out of the ball and had range for days and confidence. You know, just such confidence that she just transformed our team. We already had really talented players. We had a guard out of New Jersey, Katherine Campbell. Her sister actually played at DePaul. Um, and she was a really talented guard, you know, so strong and probably one of the best guards in division three. And then we had posts that were great role players that had serious height, mm-hmm. but Mary Kate Tierney really brought us over that edge, you know, just yeah. cause she was unlike other guards at division three level. Yeah. Um, she couldn't play defense <laughs> to save her, <laughs> you know, we were a defensive team and she, was definitely a defensive liability, but it was one of those moments where you know offense does win games. You yeah. know, you really. I know some people will argue with me, but if you can score, you're going to win. Yes, yeah,
0: someone and, has to do the scoring.
1: Yep, and that's what we had. So it was it was a lot of fun. I think so. So talent for sure. The second one was learning how to manage a talented team for yes. a whole season. Right, yeah. basketball is so long. And burnout's a real thing, and mm-hmm. I think you know that Elite Eight run when we lost to Tufts in the Elite Eight game, it definitely was just we had run out of legs. You yeah. know, we we had some really talented players again, but we they were just exhausted. It's it's a long season, and depth is important, and understanding that. You know, I know a lot of coaches say in the end of the year you're you're really not running practices. We weren't. We were doing film yeah. and a lot of treatment, maybe <laughs> shooting, depending on who felt good. Yeah. But we were saving bodies. So right. I think that was one of the first times I really realized that that how important that was.
0: For sure. So after that yeah. run to the Elite Eight, in the summer of twenty fourteen, you become the head coach of the women's team at Dickinson College. And in division three, and unlike uh, division one or division two, coaches are not allowed to have on court practices or workouts during the off season. So, how did you go about creating relationships with the women in the Dickinson program without having those types of practices to to get to know them?
1: Yeah, I, that's a great question, and I think it's something that you know, unlike this year where we've got some exceptions right now with COVID, um, it's a. It's a good and skill to learn how to do a division three period, right? How can you maintain relationships with the team outside of the season and phone calls I mean really yeah. just one on one is so important. and really listening to the students on those one on one phone calls, remembering things they say, um, you know, you just gain respect by showing interest and you gain respect by getting to know them and also being vulnerable, right? Mm -hmm. Sharing stuff about yourself. And I think that was something I've always been really attuned to, especially going back to, you know, my parents being teachers, you just, you understand how important that is that you can't ask somebody to do something if they don't know you and you don't know them. Um, so that summer it, it took a while, but there was a really active enthusiastic group that was returning that year that made that easy. Mm -hmm. You know, there was just some really wonderful upper class women that wanted to compete, wanted a program that, you know, gave them a lot. And so it made my job easy. In fact, you know, they held me to a standard quite a bit too, which was a a learning curve, but (laughs) something that was really important. So, And I actually brought that player from Ithaca to be the assistant Mary Kay Tierney she oh, ended nice. up being my assistant for two years so that was really helpful too
0: that's awesome so in an interview you gave I heard you describe that that some advice you received uh about just your first year as a head coach is that uh, it's a it's like a glorious mess obviously <laughs> in the first year of any job you learn a ton but just what were some of the things that you took away from that first year that helped you during your second year at at Dickinson
1: Uh, positivity was huge and I actually was just talking about this with one of our lacrosse coaches here at Hopkins. After that first year, we went seven and 17 and I don't know how much you've done on my college career, but I lost 27 games total as a player and a coach at Ithaca and we lost 17 in one year. Um, so that was a serious adjustment and I got, uh, Guided Towards What Drives Winning by Brett Letbetter, And it was transformational. It's a book and it's, you know, a strategy of coaching that, again, focuses on the individual development and takes focus out of quantitative goals and puts focus on qualitative goals. Okay. So we really dove into that, you know. So, for example, um, you want to be a better competitor, But what qualitatively can you measure within that that isn't something that's out of your control, right? So um, taking the numbers away from it, especially in basketball, can put more of your growth in your control. Yeah. So, for example, if you want to be a better post player and you want to have a double-double every game, a ref can call two fouls within the first five minutes and you're on the bench. So how do you still measure – how good of a competitor you are, how good of a player you are. Um, So we kind of gravitated towards us Mm -hmm. because we didn't know if the wins and losses were going to come. We couldn't measure, we couldn't use that as a measurement anymore. So we measured, you know, focus, we measured body language, we measured, uh, how, and I know this is something, you know, the Phoenix suns really put into focus a couple years ago with Steve Nash, but how many hand slaps you're going to have in a game? Like, what energy are you providing your teammates? Um, we focus positivity, but not the rah-rah the cheering positivity, but mm-hmm. like the fulfillment positivity, the working towards something that's difficult and having that growth mindset to work through it to know that you're going to get better. Interesting. Um, so that was a huge – kind of I think light bulb moment in my career uh you know it's something that I'm never gonna forget because I think it's really helped continue the growth of my coaching career and also Mm -hmm. it's it's kind of become the base the philosophy of my coaching which is you know just really person focused people focused working on qualities instead of I mean, we do a lot of skill development. Don't get me wrong, but but our end goal and our end measurement is always the person um, and their growth individually. And I think we have that we have that ability as basketball coaches to do that because we really only have thirteen or fifteen to yeah. worry about. So it's it's a blessing, you know, that we can put that much individual focus on our players.
0: And it and it definitely worked the the following two years. I think you guys won sixteen games or more both both seasons and, and made the conference tournament. And after three years at Dickinson, you become the head coach at Johns Hopkins in the summer of 2017. And just for the listeners who don't know, Dickinson and Johns Hopkins are in the same conference, the Centennial League. Just what was the process like of taking over the program of a former conference rival?
1: Man, so, wow, I still pinched myself. I mean, Dickinson was incredible. I still have very close friends from... Dickinson College. In fact, some of my greatest mentors are from that that school, and I keep in touch with them. I think because it was such a transformational point of my coaching career. Um, but Johns Hopkins was attractive for so many reasons. I mean, it, it, the school itself, yeah. um, you know, if I want to go back to my high school, it, Johns Hopkins was founded by a Quaker, Johns Hopkins. <laughs> um, and I grew up at a Quaker, a very Quaker school in yeah. Germantown, Friends. And You know, Johns Hopkins was always the ultimate school, or University of Pennsylvania, right? Those Mm -hmm. were the two like Quaker meccas, you know. Like, (laughs) so even from a from a young age, Johns Hopkins was kind of the school. Um, And I love science, so it kind of fed my science background. I love being in this environment with the student athletes, Uh, and it's in a city. You know, I I really missed being in a city, and I grew up in Philly, so this was. You know, I feel much, you know, more, more, my cup's full more every day here. Yeah. You know, I, I'm, I'm liking this environment. Uh, the process was not easy. It really wasn't. Um, I didn't want to leave Dickinson, but again, it was hard to pass up this opportunity. Right. Uh, and then I don't know how much you saw, but I took over a program from a legend. You yep. know, Nancy Funk had been coaching for 30 30 plus years started her career at Messiah college, you know, which is, again, if you're from Philly, you know, Messiah women's basketball. Uh, and then she did an incredible job at Hopkins, you know, so I took over for a program that was already established. They had been to the elite eight, Mm -hmm. They had been really competitive in the centennial conference and the UAA. Yeah. Um, so it was definitely different. I think it helped that it was only three years ago that I had taken over another program. Yeah. So it was kind of that back to that relationship building that you brought up. That was so key, you know, really understanding each individual and kind of starting with that philosophy of, you know, where do you want to get better? How do you want to get better? Instead of figuring it out for a year was, was really good. Um, But I took over a program with no seniors and seven juniors. Okay. So, you know, this is coaching. Coaching is so different no matter what. You can never replicate a year or a situation. So even though I had just taken over a program, this was so different. We were so, you know, seven juniors, three sophomores, two first years, was really
0: different, and it was a good learning experience. Um, yeah, so you you kind of started my next question, which was uh, the legendary coach Nancy Funk was at mm-hmm. Johns Hopkins for thirty-one years. She won over mm-hmm. five hundred games, ten trips to the NCAA tournament. Mm. You kind of mentioned, you know, a, a little bit of of pressure replacing Coach Funk, but did, but did you have any hesitations towards wanting to bring in your changes to the programs and, and not trying to do anything too different from the history of the program and the tradition of it?
1: No, you know, I think I think it was a good marriage, right? Coach mm-hmm. Funk had established. A competitive serious program the alums are incredible I've never been a part of a women's basketball program and even Ithaca I mean I love Ithaca I'm still active as an alum but the the, the alums are hungry to help and they're very proud and they you know are active, We have them helping out in practices because you can have alums occasionally at NCAA um, per NCAA rules. We have them at practices. They mm. help financially, which is so incredible, you yeah. know, um, so they were immediately very open to, you know, me coming in and. You know, again, coaching can be different for every person, but I'm very careful when I, when I join a new community, whatever community that is. And and it goes back again to relationship building, you know, your friend raising, you're getting to know people, you're, you know, I, I, am not ego driven. I'm not loud. If you you ever meet somebody that knows me, I, (laughs) I like to listen. I like questions. I love learning. So, you know, I take my time when I'm coming in, um, immediately it was clear from the student athletes that they wanted to win. So that was, that was easy to build off of that. You know, they were super talented. We had two guards that became all Americans that were so good. I mean, I've never coached talent like that. MK was talented, but these, Mm -hmm. it was Lillian Scott from New Jersey um, played for a really good AU program out out in New Jersey and a good high school. And she was just another level. I mean, a lefty that, could score any way she wanted to. And then Lexi Schultz, who was an athlete that i had never seen at the division three level five, five point guard who almost led us in rebounding. Wow. uh, Could jump out of the gym and she was an all American. And so I think that was the easy part. I think, you know, we really focused on basketball and I kind of let the other things happen.
0: Gotcha. Um, So Johns Hopkins uh, is, is, you know truly one of the elite of the elite universities here in in the states and it's known primarily and you know correct me if i'm wrong but as a science and medical fo- focused school does that make recruiting a little more difficult as not only do you have to find players who are good enough to play at hopkins good enough students to get in but also student athletes who have that type of academic area of interest it is
1: it's good and bad you know it's easy and hard our pool is narrow. Mm-hmm. So we know who to focus on. And that makes it I wouldn't say easy, but it it's, you know, it it zones in our energy a little bit more instead of spreading it out really thin. We get to really focus on relationship building, with you know, I think right now we've got probably around a 20 months that we're really just focusing in on because yeah. of that fit. Right, it's really important to find athletes with good fit and who can get in. Um but it's all over the country. Yeah. So sure. when when AAU is up and running or when high school games are playing, it does take a lot of energy. In fact, I was with our assistant coach yesterday and usually around this time in June we are on our fifth or sixth Ivy camp. Yeah. Right. So we're working those Ivy camps. Yep. And then we host our own camp. So June is a grind, Um, but it's a good grind. It's a focused grind. It's a relationship building grind. Uh, It's easy to recruit Johns Mm -hmm. Hopkins students because the, product we're selling is incredible, yeah. right? I truly believe in a Johns Hopkins university education and our athletic department, our athletic department matches that kind of first-class institution. Right, um, 100%. you know, we're, we're led by an incredible athletic director, Jim Baker. We've got such, uh, structure and resources within our athletic department that, you know, I really enjoy talking about it to student athletes. And I, you know, it's easier to sell something when you believe in it. And I full, fully believe in
0: it. Yeah. Coach Gilbride at uh, RPI was on the podcast a couple of weeks ago and and he kind of described it's difficult because it's a small pool, but at the same time, everyone wants to go to Johns Hopkins and a Johns Hopkins education is something so valuable that people are going to be interested in you as well. Exactly. So, Coach, culture is kind of one one of my favorite things to ask every coach who comes on the podcast. That's all my loyal listeners know. She says it's a super, super popular buzzword right now, but it's not a one-word-fit-all type thing. It, culture varies from team to team and can be very different. How would mm-hmm. you describe what the culture of Johns Hopkins women's basketball is?
1: Yeah, I think, um, I think Archie Miller said it when he t- is it, took over – Ohio State, um, or Dayton, was it which one, or, uh, in, or Indiana. Butler. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, he, he said that culture takes time and I, and I believe that you can't just come in and bulldoze your way through. And I, I feel like I've kind of made that clear with the relationship building. Um, so this year, I think we really turned a corner in what it means to be a Johns Hopkins women's basketball player and our team kind of focused in on you know because words are wonderful and easy to to identify Um, purpose was really important to our team and I think especially at a place like Johns Hopkins University where some of our athletes are you know planning on being ER doctors or you know PhD. We've got somebody at USC getting her PhD and she sidelined her research to do COVID research, right? So we've Mm -hmm. got student athletes that are really going to make a serious impact and that's kind of their, their main focus. So where does basketball fit in? And that was something we really explored the past three years was what is the purpose of being on the women's basketball program? Um, and it came down to, Finding fulfillment, you know, we love the book Atomic Habits, finding fulfillment in the little things and being challenged and being successful through challenges, you know, striving towards something and reaching that, but understanding how important the process is in that and that was really transformational for our team. So, little challenges every day and being open, I think, especially on a women's basketball team, to challenging each other yeah. and being okay with that, right? Not that toxic competition, but being competitive actually makes us better people and also makes us better as a whole and finding kind of like some motivation and mm-hmm. being, excuse my language, but kind of badass about it, right? Yeah. You know, we want to feel good about that competition. So, you know, we always kind of went back to our why. We had our athletes write why statements, um, and we kind of blanketed that as our purpose. But within that purpose, empowerment was really important for our team. So our, our culture is one where we're challenging each other, and we're finding fulfillment and challenging each other, um, and enjoyment in that, and then empowering each other while doing that. And okay. again, being a, a former women's athlete and being amongst women that are really incredible often, it's good to have a culture of women that empower each other to get better. Right. Right. You know, like, you know, we're not here to knock each other down. We are here, you know, to lift each other up and in lifting each other up, we're all going to get better as a group. You know, this isn't a pie. It's not, you know, if you have 90% of it, then I only have 10. This isn't a pie situation. If, we can all be at 100 percent. And I think that's something that we've really grasped on to. And the alums have a big piece of that. You know, they're huge. They've, as I said, not only modeled financial giving, but they've mm-hmm. given a lot of their time to help grow that kind of empowerment culture. Um, and then kind of on the court, we work hard, we yeah. work really. And that was something we kind of have a blue collar basketball game, which was something, if you had asked me that three years ago, I would have been like, nah, you know, I don't think Hopkins gets to do that, but <laughs> we definitely have a blue collar approach to games. We were 12th in the country in scoring defense this year. Yeah. Um, we're kind of suffocating. I, I, you know, I worked Carla Berube's Princeton camp last summer and learned a lot defensively and also coaching against her team yeah. when she was at Tufts. You know, I think especially with smart student athletes, you can really grasp onto defense. One hundred Um, so I think on the court, you know, we work hard, we want to play fast. We actually get talent where we can play fast. So those, you know, those basketball identities are important too, for us.
0: The 2018-2019 season was one of the best in recent uh, Hopkins history. The team went 23 and five, and kind of as you mentioned, led by Lexi and, and, and Lillian, incredibly talented group of seniors that year. And you advanced all the way to the second round of the NCAA tournament. Was there a moment or a play during that that season when you kind of knew or thought to yourself that this team could really do something special?
1: Yeah. I immediately know. Um, it was our senior game against her Sinus. And maybe that was later. Uh, there's two. Okay, I'll, I'll I'll restart. Earlier on in the season, we were in a tournament down at Mary Washington and we were playing Transylvania, a program that I'd heard a lot about mm-hmm. and the coach is incredible. A lot of respect for her and the team was getting some preseason ranking nods and I and I don't think Hopkins had really beat a ranked opponent in a really long time um, and we were getting hammered I mean we were down 21 I think <laughs> within the first you know definitely by the second quarter but I think even in the first quarter you know we were we were way down um, and this team was two feet taller than us at every position yeah uh, and uh, I made some substitutions put some players in you know took Lil and Lexi out who were, again were our all American guards um, took them out and put some of our subs in and one of our subs, just Sweeney hit a corner three. Now sh- she can listen to this and I can say it because I'd say it to her face. She is not a three point shooter. In fact, she <laughs> screamed when she shot the three and nonetheless like a corner three. And yes, I know at the NBA level, corner threes are higher percentage. They're close to the basket, not in division three college yeah. women's basketball Johns Hopkins. Like corner threes are very difficult. Um, hits that and it just ignited the team uh-huh. just an absolute spark and you can see it as a coach and you can sense it and you know the other team can sense it um and we just went on a run and we That's just awesome. started crushing Transylvania and we beat them uh-huh. and I still you know again we were tiny you know we our starting lineup was five, 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 four, five, six. <laughs> you know, five, eight, six, two, and the six, two player was incredible, but minimum like, that was definitely a moment that I think transformed everybody because a, they realized they could win. Um, you know, I, I don't think they had learned how to win yet mm-hmm. and they worked through that game, came from behind, you know, didn't give up and, and kind of came together, you know, it was team it really was a team effort. I know those are a lot of coaching cliches, but it yeah. was really true in that situation um and then we ended up winning that tournament so they got something right you right. know this team had never had even though it was a trophy from a thanksgiving tournament like they they loved it, it and counts. they held onto yeah. it yeah and they put it up you know and this is again is when coaching's so different at ithaca we would have you know put that on the couch and kind of forgotten about it (laughs) because we had higher goals, but at Hopkins, they put that in the locker room. They put it up on, we have these stools. They put it up on like a couple stools and they just had it prominent throughout the whole season. I thought that was so important for them to see. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the next one was our senior game against her sinus. Uh, Lily and Scott, our point guard um, was just running her sinus out of the gym. And at one point, uh, Lexi hit it. We were on defense and Lexi tipped the ball and it's kind of starting to go out of bounds in front of our bench sideline. Mm-hmm. And I, and Lil sprints to save it and throws it behind her back up into the air towards our basket where our player catches it perfectly in time and lays it up. And it was just one of those moments where I was like, yeah, that's how good this team is. Like, <laughs> yeah, they're pretty good. I don't think I've ever seen that play at our level before. Um, and they were just having fun, you know, yeah. I think, and again, I don't want to go to like toxic positivity where fun, you know, it always has to be fun cause it doesn't, but it was just so awesome to see Johns Hopkins student athletes let loose off yeah. court and be good at it. And it was really enjoyable.
0: Something that's always interested me just in sports as a whole coach is just this concept and idea of leadership and what makes a good leader because every team to achieve the their maximum potential needs good leadership but it's kind of similar to culture in that each team kind of needs a different leadership style to reach that potential some teams need a rah-rah yelling in your face kind of pump up leader and others you know a lead quieter lead by example type as as you mentioned as as kind of you were as as a player as a coach you know you are the face and the outward leader of the program but do you evaluate at all the the type of leadership style that your team a particular season may need and kind of do you ever try to adjust to that
1: definitely Uh, you know we've had quite a adjustment here at Hopkins so took over a program with seven juniors and at that time, uh, you know, at my previous school at Dickinson, we were doing leadership groups, right? We didn't have captains. Uh, so I tried to do that the first year or so at Hopkins. And with seven upper-class women, it, it quickly became apparent that that was really difficult. Yeah, And it was hard to find a streamline of communication. It was hard to balance. I mean, that, that group of seniors were so incredible. Each one of them, it was hard to balance their voices, Mm -hmm. quite frankly. And that was one of the moments where I was like, okay, structure would have really benefited this, you know, like there were moments where, you know, it hurt us. It definitely did. So we changed and we went to a captain structure this year and it was incredible. We, um, you know, it, we didn't really have a voting process. It was again through relationship building and kind of smaller discussions within the whole team. It wasn't a formal process. It was kind of identified through our conversations. And we were very honest, you know, we were saying, you know, we want captains, who do you think are leaders on the team? And I think that's something that's really important is, you know, we really try and be transparent all the time and honest. Um, But we really listened to the team and we ended up choosing a senior Jess Sweeney, the one who hit that corner three, um, she was a captain this year and was incredible. I mean, you know, really helped make a team feel like a team, yeah. you know, she was a great bridge between each class. She respected everybody. She was a great listener and a great communicator, uh, was not a basketball player. You know, she worked really hard, um, gave us some excellent minutes this year, but, you know, identified that as her role. So I would say good leaders are authentic, know who they are and know their role. I think that's really important. Um, And then we had a sophomore be a captain, Dr. Odin, because it's really crucial to have a leader on the court, right? You You can't have, you know, our seniors didn't play much and they weren't super vocal on the court so we really needed that leader on the court and Diara yeah. has been incredible even though she's a sophomore she's grown so much and we're really fortunate here at Hopkins to have a leadership program so a lot of our student athletes are part of that program and diara is as well um, so she was getting leadership development from us as a coaching staff but also from our athletic department
0: and she's um, an and awesome she's, player too
1: oh my gosh she's so she is incredible she you know, another part of the Hopkins kind of culture transformation has been making basketball cool, yeah. right? It's cool to work hard at basketball. And she has been a huge part of that. You know, she is in the gym working all the time. She brings people in with her, you know, I'm going to go shoot, come with me. Um, goes back to the kind of that hard work fulfillment. Like you get, you get fulfillment from the day, Yeah. day to day process. Right. Um, so the captain structure was new to me. I'd never been a part of it, uh, but it really benefited us this year, and I think it helped us kind of exceed expectations. Yeah, you know, it, we really we really overperformed this year, and I was proud of them.
0: One thing that I find just really interesting about the high academic Division three basketball world is you start the season. So you guys start the season on on October fifteenth. You're going full steam ahead. You're kind of getting to that mid season feel, you know, at that point of the season, and all of a sudden, finals, where you shut mm-hmm. down all these student athletes, the women in your program change to, you know, finals at Johns Hopkins are no joke. It's no. like the most stressful week I know from my time at Wesleyan. Wesleyan's a good school. It's not Johns Hopkins. That mm-hmm. week is crazy. How do you adjust it as a coach where you're kind of going full steam ahead, you're hitting that midpoint, high peak, Climbing the mountain, all of a sudden you have to shut it down. The player's focus shifts away from basketball to their academics, and then a lot of times, depending on their schedules, they go home for a Christmas break. So it's kind of like this weird mid-season, 10 to maybe even 20-day break. How do you Mm -hmm. kind of approach that as a coach?
1: Honestly, sometimes I I think it can't come soon enough
0: because (laughs) it's
1: such a welcome relief. It really is. You know, especially since I've been here at Hopkins, I have gained a lot more respect for the difficulty of the education here. I mean, it really is. These students they're learning. I mean, (laughs) if I go back to my Ithaca, you know, experience, my free time was taken up with being active or or hanging out with friends. They are studying here. They are helping each other out. They're tutoring, they're researching. Their free time is not necessarily free. Um, So, you know, we always say basketball is a welcome relief for them. And we use that during their final schedule. You know, we schedule open gyms, and we let the leaders lead it. Right. We take a hands off approach. I think it's really important to take a mental break. Basketball can be mentally exhausting, you know, yes. especially in our program. We require a lot out of our student athletes in that you know, we teach basketball. (laughs) We don't really have a system. Uh We have somewhat of a system, but we really, you know, we're doing film a lot. We have a language. We're teaching them that if they go and play pickup with somebody three years from now that they can speak the same language, right? So a lot of female athletes don't know that when they come out of high school. So we're challenging them. And I think the finals are a really great time to kind of take a step back remember going back to that purpose and back to that. Why, why do I play basketball? Mm-hmm. Cause I love it, you know, because I love being with my teams because I enjoy, you know, a fast break layup. And I think they get to that again during that break. Um, they get to kind of be on their own. We're not structuring practice. We're yeah. not, you know, preparing for, we're not scouting. We're not preparing for a game. And I think it's again, a welcome relief for them. And, uh, it's always been something as a former student athlete that I feel like I've adjusted too well because I remember that feeling for sure. You know, I really remember wanting to just sleep for two days when I got home, yeah. you know, you don't realize how exhausting college is until you become a college athlete, especially basketball because you know, I'm biased. I just think basketball <laughs> is one of the hardest sports. So, so we, coach, we always adjust really well. Yeah. yeah.
0: So we're recording this on June 15th. It's the off season. I'm sure the players in your program are training, getting ready for the fall semester and, and next season. It's a lot simpler at times for a player to work out in the offseason and try and improve. You know, If you want to get stronger, you lift weights. If you want to become a better shooter, you practice shooting. But as a coach due to all the NCAA rules and regulations, it's not like you can go out and coach 100 basketball games this summer to work on in-game substitutions or, or in-game coaching decisions. How do you approach the offseason and try to improve as a coach for the following year?
1: That is a great question. I never get that question, but we actively think about that. Uh, So that's why I actually require our assistant coaches to go to Ivy camps and not just watch them but work them Yeah. because you get to coach a team. And I'm really adamant about that, and I'm kind of maybe annoying about it, but – You know, I even still go to them and you rarely see head coaches coaching at those camps. But I enjoy it because it's true. You have to stay fresh Mm -hmm. and you have to, again, go back to how to teach different learners. And it's a great recruiting tactic, too, you know, because you get to kind of show off how you coach and you get to build relationships. So those camps are really important. We host camps. And when we host camps, we coach, too. Um, so we stay fresh within that, uh, I'm sure you've heard on some of the other podcasts, but there are great networks of coaches and we stay in touch, Yeah, you know, so we do chalk talks and even at some of these Ivy camps, the coaches will host chalk talks during then. So you can talk about, you know, end of game situations or, you know, what new skill or what new drill do you really like? You know, we're just throwing a bunch of ideas out, um, the convention is always a great start off to that. So in final April four, yeah. when it's the yeah the, that final four is always so valuable, and I think that can be a good jump start for the summer for coaches to stay fresh. I think it's you meet new people, you hear something new. You know, maybe somebody did a presentation on stats, so then you reach mm-hmm. out to that person. I mean, you know, the coaching network is so open and welcoming to. Yeah talking. And then honestly at recruiting events, you know, I think it's gotten better in our, in our world, the women's world, you know, people aren't as secretive anymore. So I've sat at a game, you know, I'm not going to tell you which recruit it was, but I've <laughs> sat at a game and just written out plays with another coach, yeah. you know, like, Oh, well we tried this this year. We tried always slipping our drag screens and transition, you know, like that it really worked for us, you know? So we'll just chat strategy then and i really i really miss that actually you know right yeah. now i think it's a part that i've felt a void for sure
0: so the women's college game is in many many ways a lot more like the pro game than the college men's game you have the four 10 minute quarters and the rule that i love the most that you guys have adopted is the advancing the ball after a timeout for end of game situations while we all love watching the the clip of the Christian Leitner play in in 92, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. advancing the ball at the end of the game just makes it a lot more exciting. Mm -hmm. As someone who's just never played with this rule before, are there just certain guidelines or fundamental principles that that you try to follow in those situations?
1: Um, Yeah, really. So we always do situations in practice. We try and do two minutes or Bridget, the assistant right now brought a great game called Nickel and Dime over from Mm -hmm. Marymount. Um, So we practice them first off. I think that's so key. And we'll do really crazy ones that we practice against. So our defense is actually ready for it, right? Um, I think one principle we always discuss on the defensive side end of game is be aware of a back screen, yeah. right? For the most part, we practice a flare or a back screen all the time. And we try and switch them just because a lot of the time, the person that's setting that back screen then becomes the shooter. So we always emphasize that. Um, however, Bobby Morgan from Haverford, we lost uh, a game this year because they got a beautiful, there was I think a second left on the clock. They got a beautiful uh-huh. back screen lob. Um, so even though we practice it and it's a principle, we still get beat on it. Um, but you know, advancing for us offensively has changed depending on who we have. So again, those two guards we had at Hopkins were so incredible in the full court that we actually tried not to advance it because they were so dynamic um, and they were so incredible that actually a flat screen in the middle of the court mm-hmm. would have produced a much higher percentage look for us than okay. bringing it. And, and that was more because we also identified we didn't have a great inbound passer because yeah. um, that's a huge part of this, you know, trying to identify who can inbound the ball is a headache quite frankly (laughs) yeah
0: that was that that was something we struggled with during when when we do situations at wesley and we have to practice like these full court situations we we spent a lot of time uh maybe not that productively but we'd spend a lot of time trying to find someone who could actually throw the pass and we never did (laughs)
1: exactly no it's a real art and and most teams at least in our conference will put their tallest player on the ball yeah uh and that can be a real headache. If you have somebody inbounding the ball, you know, I'm biased, but I think point guards tend to be the best passers because they can anticipate and they see things and, you know, our point guards are five, five. So <laughs> Once you put a six, three girl or a six, two girl on the inbounder, you know, we, we have some sets for then screening the inbounder, but you still got to get the ball in, yeah, you know, sure. it's, um, that was definitely a real headache for us. So, I got some advice from Jim Mullins who just retired from Ithaca, mm-hmm. uh, when I was an assistant drawing up inbounds plays for Ithaca. Um, and he said, just, you know, keep it simple and try not to set a lot of screens. Okay, so that was kind of my philosophy until this year when we didn't have those dynamic players that could spread the floor and create on their own. Yeah. So, you know, we do a lot of deception. Um, we have used them quite a bit. Our rule is, you've got to get a shot off. Yeah. You know, we really don't care. Um, at Dickinson, when I was the head coach there, we won two games on an offensive rebound. Oh, so wow. we practice. You know, we practice wedging. We practice offensive rebounding mm-hmm. because you just got to get a shot up. You know, a shot. It's always better than a turnover. Is kind of For one sure. of our slogans.
0: So, so coach, I,
1: a, yeah, I,
0: I appreciate all the time as as we get to the to the end here. I have five rapid fire questions to end the podcast. Okay, good. Go. All right. Number one, your favorite drill as a coach? Uh, It's
1: 3v3 full court.
0: Okay. Do you have any coaching idols or uh, heroes? Don Staley, 100%. Do you have any pregame superstitions?
1: (laughs) I don't. I really don't. I'm not a superstitious person.
0: (laughs) Okay. If you could change one rule about college basketball, what would you change?
1: Hmm, that's a good one. Um, I would love. Can I? Can I add a rule? Yeah. I would love defensive three seconds. Okay. I would love to open up the court a little
0: bit more. Interesting. Another pro rule into the, mm-hmm. the college game. All right, and the last mm-hmm. one. Do you ever still play with the team to show them that coach still has game?
1: <laughs> um. So. So we can't play with the team, but. We play pickup all the time at Hopkins, and you know I I jump in and demo quite a bit. (laughs) I definitely, I definitely can show my skills uh, there. I, you know, I grew up watching Alan Iverson and Don Staley, so I've got a lot of tricks up my sleeve that I like to show them. So I enjoy that.
0: Well, Coach, I want to thank you for all the time, and as always, on the Double Double, we give the last word to our guests. Do you have anything you want to say to the great people of Baltimore, Maryland?
1: Um, you know, not to Baltimore necessarily, (laughs) I love Baltimore, I live here in the city and I think it's wonderful. I want to thank you. I really do. I think there's a, there's a few people that give division three a platform and I really appreciate it. And I think there's some incredible coaches at our level and I I appreciate you giving kind of us a word to share with others. So thank you.
0: That'll do it for this episode of the double double. If you like this podcast, you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast, and you can subscribe, rate, and review. Five stars would be much, much appreciated. You can also follow us on Twitter at dbl underscore dbl podcast. We'll be back later this week. Until then, take care and make it a great day.